absolutely amazing to see you all. Um, man, I hope you had a great Christmas. How many of you guys uh, had the best Christmas ever? How come? Would you get a Polly Pocket or something? What'd you get? Mom got declared cancer free. I look like an idiot now. Um, that's incredible, dude. Praise God for that, man. That's awesome. Yeah, give it up for that. It's incredible. Sorry about the Polly Pocket thing. Uh, anybody else? Best Christmas ever? Yeah, what's up? How come, dude? Is that Ronnie? How come, bro? Got closer to your dad. Okay. Again, glad I didn't make a joke there. Very serious. Okay. I had a great Christmas. Um, got to marry two of our Lot family leaders. That sounded bad. Um, I pastored, uh, pastored the weddings of two of our Lot family leaders. Uh, and one of them is here tonight. The other one's on their honeymoon, so we won't bother them. But Jared and Sarah Corzine are here. So we're excited. Could you guys stand up for us? Stand up. Come on. Look at them. They're all so married. Yes. Newly married. Hey, it's look married. It's looking awesome. Last Monday, and like I said, Dave and Penny are in Orlando on their honeymoon. And uh, man, excited about that. Just a great, great uh, season. Tonight's our last gathering of 2009. Hope the year was somewhat beneficial for you. At the end of this teaching tonight, once we do business and we have a lot of business to do, at the end of tonight, you'll hear some of my thoughts about the year 2009 for our particular church community. It is good to see you um, because it looks like we're missing about 300 of you, but uh, I'm excited to journey with the intimate gathering that we have tonight, and I hope that you have come anticipating piss of whatever God's going to bring for. So open your Bibles to first Peter chapter one. Um, check this out. So two weeks ago, we ended with this statement. Peter was writing about the pursuit of holiness. And he, um, he mentioned very strongly that the pursuit of holiness is a good thing, that it's not a pompous thing. It's not an arrogant thing. I want to, I want to share something with you. Some of the most holy, in line with Christ people we know, we ridicule because they don't go to some movies that we go to because they they speak differently. One of my best friends is one of the most integrity-filled dudes that you will ever meet. And at times he gets ridiculed because he's not as loosey-goosey as everyone else. And I say that's folly on our part. A man that is pursuing holiness that has sought out Christ and is doing so in a humble way, we should be encouraged by because the scripture says in verse 16 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, uh, there's an easy question that comes out of this. The last two weeks, have you been pursuing holiness? Have you become more like Jesus? Look, I don't want to just come here, open our Bibles, sing some songs, tickle one another's minds with deep theological statements. The Word is living and active. It must change us. Do you guys see what I'm saying? We haven't come together so that we can wrap arms around one another and make each other feel good that we have a church that has candles and a cool band. That's not why we've gathered. We've gathered so that the Word and the Holy Spirit working in unison can change us. So the easy question then is, have you become more holy? You're like, well, what does that mean? It it means simply, in the last two weeks, have you become more like Christ? Have the traits of Christ permeated through yourself? Or have you fallen into the 
holiday funk of family and busyness and chaos. And you, I, I can sense tonight this kind of a dull drumness. And it already bothers me, so I'm already amped a little bit, if you can't tell, which is going to spell trouble for all of us here in about 10 minutes, all right? But I, I want to battle that because I want to be a church that gathers, we go to the Word so that we can be changed. So that we can walk out of these doors and say, no, 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 we as a church are pursuing holiness and we're going after it. Now, I ended with this statement two weeks ago. Is it enough? Is be holy as I am holy? Is that enough for you? And the example I gave was specifically, um, one of the examples specifically geared toward the men. And the example I gave was if you're sitting at the computer images potentially could come up on the screen. And in that moment when you click or don't click and you type and you don't type, and there's the potential to be sucked into pornography, is be holy as I am holy enough for you in that moment. My contention was for many of us it's not. We need the pat on the back. We long to be obedient when other people are watching so that we can be seen as the holy Christian, that is not a pursuit of holiness. And so tonight, look at this. Tonight, Peter's going to continue to make his case. These three verses are absolute beauties. All right, so you guys in, with your Bibles in First Peter chapter 1, you guys there? Say I'm there. Awesome. All 60% of you. Uh, verse 17 says this. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Let me pause there and say this. If you're new here, we go verse by verse through the scriptures. Okay, we believe that the Bible is good. and We believe that it's worth studying verse by verse so we don't have to skip over hard teachings. So we've been in First Peter for about a month and a half. And here's what we know about Peter. He's an apostle. He's a disciple. He spent a lot of time with Jesus, about three years or so. He saw the miracles. He saw the transfiguration. He saw people rise from the dead. He was around the teachings of Christ. All right, He was in the upper room as Jesus broke bread. This guy has a great understanding of who Christ is, even through his failure. He denied the name of Jesus three times. This guy has been rung through the ringer, and yet... Christ restores him at the end of one of the Gospels. And so we see this now picture of this man writing to these churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to a group of Christians that are suffering for the Gospel, and he's encouraging them on what a life after Christ looks like. And so he says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Let's break this up into the, the first kind of three phases here. And if you call on him as, what's the word? His father. Now, uh, this is interesting. In our culture, um, there's pretty much one term that covers all the bases. Okay? Uh, let me, all of you have a dad on this earth. All of you. No, no matter what your relationship is with, with him. Some of you have a phenomenal relationship with your father. Some of you relationship is being restored with your father. Uh, others of you don't spend any time uh, with your dad. You may not even know him. We have varying degrees of all, all of our relationships with our dad, but we all have one. Uh, it's interesting, you know, many of you guys know that uh, the Coats for Kids campaign, the, the whole campaign that started We Love St. Charles, uh, we passed out uh, now nearly 380 coats to the community of St. Charles, just loving them. Uh, 68 or 9% of those families were single moms, kids that don't have dads. 
And uh, here just a few weeks ago for Christmas, we had one of these families over to my house and I was explaining to my little three-year-old girl how we desire, as Christ, uh, as Christ did, to love on these, um, on these kids that don't have dads like she does. And she's getting it because she's repeating it to my grandma. So dad is this universal term that covers all of the basis of father in our culture. There's no like term that we use for bad fathers. There's, no, there's not like a dad term that we use to cover bad fathers. We just add adjectives before it. He's a horrible dad. He's a non, is that an adjective? Um, okay. He's a non, sorry, I didn't know adverb, adjective, all the ads just, you know, mess me up. He, he's, a, he's a non-existent father. We, we put something in front of it, but dad, like it, it just doesn't carry any more weight in our culture because it, it could mean all these varying things. Now, in the pursuit of holiness, listen, Peter starts out by saying, if you call on him as father, he's not condemning calling God father, clearly, because he was one of the guys who asked Jesus, when we pray, how should we do it? And Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our father who art in heaven. And the, the Greek word is Abba. It's this intimate relationship with God. So clearly, Peter's not condemning it But what he is doing is he's challenging how cozy and casual his readers have gotten by calling God Father. Now listen to this. We have allowed our cultural view of our dads to take away the weight of the intimacy of calling God Father. The implications of being able to call God, Yahweh, Father, run so deep and so rich that when we begin a prayer by saying our... Let me give you an example. I played football before every game. Guess what we said? Guess what we said? The the Lord's Prayer. So you're looking around at, at these guys... Seriously, my junior year of high school, uh, six of the guys on my defense ended up in prison two years later. Uh, that's not an exaggeration by any stretch. I wasn't one of them, just so you're clarified on that. You're like, a, no, not me. Uh, that was the year after. Just kidding about that. But um, we would all say the Lord's Prayer. Listen, so you have all of these guys like saying our father, when for many of them, he's not their father at all. But for some of you, he is your father. And the implications of God being your father are mind-boggling. And yet we take it for granted. The opportunity that we have to say, Abba, do you understand this? Now, again, he's talking about the pursuit of holiness here. And so let's keep going and then we'll come back. He says this, who judges impartially, you call on God as father, who judges impartially according to each one's Deeds. Now this gets tricky because you're like, hold on a second. So he's talking about calling God Father, giving us this picture of the intimate relationship we have with God. But then he says he judges impartially. So he throws in this new character trait of God. He's a, a judge. And then the scripture also says that he, um, he judges according, according to one's deeds. Which if you're like me, you're instantly thinking of all the pastors. Well, hold on a second. We're saved by grace through faith. So what... Like he, and he's writing to Christians. He's writing to mostly Gentile Christians in Asia Minor. So why is he talking about calling on the Father 
in the concept of holiness. And this father judges impartially. Like, what, what does that mean? What are the implications? Well, Scripture is very, very clear about the fact that our deeds are evidence of what's happening on the inside. James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. Make a tree good and its, and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. It's another thing Jesus said. Clearly, the evidence then of our life with Christ is shown in the fruit. So God, Father, is still a judge. We have the opportunity to be intimately connected with the judge and all will stand before God as judged and as a child of him then are seen through the lens of Christ. And here's what I love. He doesn't show favoritism. He judges justly. Uh, You can't tell me. How many of you guys are in college? Most of our college students are on break except all 40 of you. Um, you can't tell me that a professor grades ambiguously. You know what I'm saying? Come on. Let's, I mean, let's be clear. The same two people could hand in the same paper. And first of all, do they even read them, right? That's my first contention. I, I mean, I'm sure your professors do, but, you know, some of mine at a liberal arts McKendry College, you know, maybe not, didn't. Is that a double negative? I think so, right? Listen, you can't tell me, you can't tell me that a professor grades each paper completely ambiguously. No, like there's all these factors. Where do they sit? Do they sit in front? Do they talk? Have they ever given me an apple? Like you, listen, you can't tell me those. If you go in and talk to your professor, if you go in and talk to your professor, spend time with him, you can't tell me that when he grades your paper, he's going to grade it the exact same of someone who sits in the back and never talks. Humans are incapable of not showing favoritism. It's in our sinful nature to show favoritism. But God judges justly. Some of you are trying to earn the favor of God by being the great worthy sacrifice. But He sees right through your heart to know whether your deeds are done truly out of your relationship with Christ or for your own benefit and stature. Are you with me? Now, let let me, let me say it this way. We are saved by grace through faith. And so, of course, then we do good deeds and we do good deeds because we are saved by grace through faith. It works from both perspectives. And so he shows us this phenomenal balance. God is Father, intimate, connected relationship, and God as judge. And then he ends, verse 17, amazingly, conduct yourselves with what? With fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, if you're just joining us in the first verse of 1 Peter, Peter calls his readers elect exiles, chosen Sojourners. In other words, this place isn't their home. They're just passing through. They're not there for long. It's, it's like us. This earth isn't our home. We're just passing through. And so he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. I've taught fear in many different ways, but the concept here is different. Let me explain. I was putting my kids to bed last night. We have a three-year-old and a, seven-year, a seven-month-old, Dawson. 
who has a double ear infection right now, by the way. Um, is he down in the nursery? I don't think he has a fever, so no worries. Uh, you parents get that. The college kids are like, what's a fever? Um, so the, the first one to go to bed last night was, was Dawson. He's seven months old, and Heidi's holding him, you know, because he's sick, and so that motherly thing that she's got working. But they come upstairs, and, I, and I'm, I'm telling Dawson goodnight, and Heidi and Dawson are over here. And I say, Dawson, and I get his attention, and he looks at me. And I say, Dawson, I hope you feel better. Uh, I love you. And about halfway through that statement, he's like, oh, there's the light. I love the light. Give me the, and I'm still talking to him. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no, there's no concept for him that daddy is talking. For him, it's just, you know, he looks at me when I say his name, but then his attention just is instantly like, oh, look at the, this is awesome. Like, put me to, you know, he just has no concept of undivided attention. My little girl, three, completely different. I tuck her in with her nice, and I mentioned it before, her little princess sleeping bag that she sleeps in every night on a mattress, okay? <laughs> Some of you are like, what kind of, you know? We suspend her from the ceiling. Don't worry about it, you know? <clears throat> and, and I'm tucking her in, and we're chatting. And I say, Avery. And we, we do family worship downstairs, and then when I go upstairs and tuck her in, um, ask her what, what, I, what we can pray together for. And whenever I do that, she knows that daddy's getting serious. She, she knows that, like, it's, it's go time, okay? And pick, you, know, you see me now, but picture me with my three-year-old girl. Even my three-year-old girl knows when it's go time, you know? And so we have this moment. Listen, she doesn't take her eyes off of me. She's focused, and we pray together. Now, there's silly times, of course, with her where we're laughing and we're joy- But there's, there's times when she knows that daddy's serious, that when she hears daddy's voice, she gives daddy undivided attention. Fear of God, knowing that you have this intimate relationship with him as father and knowing that he is still a judge. Fear, respect, honor, awe is giving God your undivided attention. That says you respect them. Look, some of you have some uh, friends that are close to you and that you deeply, deeply respect. When that friend walks in the room, they get everything that you are. You, you're, you're, you're long and you're hanging on every word that you say. Some of you have amazing grandparents. When they would walk in the room, it's just like everything stops because we're going to hear, you know, great granddad, whatever his name is. For Dawson, I fear that many of you are just like that. God does... God gets your attention with his word very, very briefly. And then you're like, oh, pretty bird. You know, you're just like off everywhere. When you know you fear God, when he is getting your undivided attention. Well, Mark, how do we give God our undivided attention when we're living life? Like we have stuff to do. Everything is seen through the lens of the gospel. Everything is coming back for his glory and name's sake. That is giving God your undivided attention. That is fearing God. In a culture right now, we have no concept of this. We've become way too cozy, way too casual with God. Listen, I long for the times, and I'm serious about this. I long for, like earlier, I, I get, fr- I, here's, what I, here's what I really desire. For the Christians in this room, if you're a non-Christian here, if you don't believe in Christ, welcome. Like, welcome to a bunch of people that are just on a journey. It's so good to have you here. For the Christians in this room, you know what I really long for? I long for the time when we, when we come up before a worship gathering 
and we just read the scripture and that's enough. And you're just, you're ready. You're excited. You can't wait to worship. And we all show our energy and excitement in different ways. Clearly, I know, all right? If we were all like me, you know, this would be a circus. And I'm not asking, I'm not asking that of us. But what I am saying is, when will the word be enough? When we truly fear and respect and honor God and understand fear's role in our pursuit of holiness, then someone could just stand up and say, isn't God amazing? And the Christians in this room would instantly be stirred, all showing it and expressing it in their different ways. Don't you long for that? But we just sit back, hands in our pockets, too cool for school, doing our own thing. I'm tired of those days. I'm ready for the word to stir us again. I'm excited about seeing Christians who are zealous for the gospel, who have a deep fear and honor of who God is, that when the word of God is spoken, there's this undivided attention that when you're in your closet and you're reading the word, it it grips you, it grabs you. The distractions of this world seem to fade away. That is a life that fears God. But for many of you, you're just like Dawson. You're an infant. You have no concept of what it means to give something your undivided attention. You're easily distracted. And for you, your fear of God is minimal. I pray that all of you become like the little girl who can't wait to hear daddy's voice. And when she hears daddy's voice, she's right there hanging and longing for every word to be spoken. Are you with me? Now, all of this is in the concept of holiness. And now let's look at verse 18. This gets very interesting very fast. Let me read verse 17 again, just so we can kind of sum up what verse 17 says, and then we'll move on. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Live giving God your undivided attention. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. This word ransomed, the truo is the uh, Greek word. And it means to be released by a payment when you were being held captive. Now we know what a ransom is because we've been to the movies, right? So we got, isn't there a movie called Ransom, right? Yeah. Okay, so some of you don't watch movies, but... The, the whole concept is, listen, the whole concept of a ransom is that, is that like normally someone's kidnapped and they want cash. And so they kidnap whoever it is, a, a daughter in this case, I think it was, and, and, and then they you know, give us $10 billion and we'll let your little girl go. This word ransomed as it pertains to the gospel. Listen to this. For many of you, When you started relationship with Christ, this word ransom had a deep meaning. Here's why. You really understood how captive you were by the world. You understood how worthless your ways were. You really understood how in bondage you were to sin. And you began that relationship with Christ and you tasted grace for the first time. And you understood what the word ransomed meant. You knew that you were dead. You knew that you were gone. And that a price had been paid for you. And you were set free. 
And on that side of grace, it never tasted better. Ransom for you, it was everything. The farther you journey away from the moment that you tasted grace for the first time from the cross of Christ is each moment that gets easier to let this this word ransomed fall from your heart. On this side of grace, for some of you who have now been Christians 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years, maybe even a month, the word ransomed has lost its meaning. Listen, ransomed for you has now turned to wage. You used to understand that you were ransomed and now you think that it's a wage. Now you think that it's something that you earn. Now you think that it's a time clock. Now you call God boss and not savior. That's what happens when grace and ransomed loses its luster. And it should never. Because we're held captive by the bondage of sin, released only, and we'll see it here in a second, by the grace of Christ. For some of you, the ransom has become a wage. God, look at what I've done. Come on. You've seen what I've done. Oh yeah, I know back then I understood grace, but now I have to continually earn it. And for some of you, that's what you think. Some of you think that there was this, this moment when you begin a relationship with Christ and then after a while, you have to like keep earning it. You're confusing that with pursuing holiness. Pursuing holiness is the evidence of what Christ did in your life. Are you with me? You're not continually earning this grace. This grace comes as a gift, unmerited. That's why you can call God Abba and not boss man. See what I'm saying? This word ransomed for some of you right now just needs to be on the tip of your tongue. You need to remember that moment. Remember how it's continually setting you free. The scripture says in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, the Greek word for feudal literally means completely and utterly useless from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Now this is interesting. We know in Romans that scripture says that we are all sinners because Adam sinned, all have sinned. But I want to bring another um, side of this into it for you. Asia Minor is dominated by what culture? Anyone? Greek culture, okay? Asia Minor dominated by Greek culture with Asian influence. We've talked about this before, theos, chaos. All these different gods, all these different understandings. For a Greek, lineage and heritage and forefathers has way different meaning than it does for many of us. In the Greek culture, when something is passed down, it's normally associated with something that's very, very positive. And we see at the end of verse 18 that it's gold and silver, that you know this, the wealth is passed down and the names brought forth. But what Peter's talking about here is sin that has been passed down from Adam and all the way down in the generations. And it's, it's been inherited by all of these folks, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. And verse 19, friends, look at this. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
Now, listen to this. He says, be holy as I am holy. Then he says, then he says, look, you can call God father. He's still a judge. You need to live in that balance. But ultimately he's going to judge impartially. Remember that you've been ransomed and you've been ransomed with a great cost. With the precious blood of Christ. It wasn't gold and silver that are very precious metals, but they'll eventually fade. It's with the precious blood of Christ. So, his contention is, be holy as I am holy. If that's not enough, and it should be, then remembering your ransom, remembering the precious blood of Christ, that should be enough. Let's do a lot of work here. Can we do some business together? I got like mini stool here, so I'm sorry. I'd like grab the wrong one. This is like the three foot stool. All right, work with me though. In, in Jewish culture, the meaning of a lamb is, is deep. Okay, Exodus chapter 12, we see the first Passover. Now, I want, I want you guys to get this picture. And some of you will remember a teaching I did in the Passover about a year ago now. We're going to go deeper than that. So a lamb was supposed to be killed in Exodus chapter 12 so that the firstborn son of the Jews didn't what? Didn't die. Now we know that, that Pharaoh's son and many of the Egyptian sons died that night, but the whole thing was you go out and kill a lamb that's without blemish, and then you take that blood and you paint it all over the doorstep, and then, and then God will pass by. Listen, I've never understood this until now. Could you imagine the scene with how many unblemished lambs had to be found. Can, can you guys imagine? Look, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not my, I'm not a sheep herder, shepherd. I'm not a, I don't mess with sheep a lot, okay? But listen, I know this. By the biblical standards, to find one that is unblemished is difficult. I want you to imagine the scene at the original Passover. Everyone in search of an unblemished lamb. Why? Because you look over and you see your son. You see him. And in that moment, do you think that these Israelites feared God? Do you think? Listen, do you think the ransom at this point meant something? Because the ransom was, you trade a lamb for a what? For for a child. Trade a lamb, kill an unblemished lamb for a child. If you don't substitute a lamb for a child, I will take your child. Are you guys with me? It's, it's, it's substitutionary. It's, the lamb represents the substitute. Now, listen to this. Can I ask you this? When that lamb was killed, and you're a parent, picture yourself as a parent. For those of you that aren't parents, picture yourself as one. And you spill the blood of the lamb. Do you think they took out like a colored pencil to do the painting of the blood on the doorstep. I even think that the movies portrayed this incorrectly. As a dad, every drop of that lamb's blood is going on that doorstep. Are you with me? I look over and I see my, I see my son and I am making sure that I follow directions carefully. This is, not, this is, li- this is nothing to play with. So picture the scene. Be there for a moment. Understand how precious it was for them, A, to be released from Egypt, which would happen after the night, but B, 
swipe this blood on the doorstep so that as God came through, death didn't come crouching at their, at their door. Do you understand a little bit? The substitute of a lamb, of the unblemished lamb, was everything. Without it, the kids die. This isn't make-believe. This isn't a felt board story. This happened. Okay? And I know Charlton Heston messed it up for us all, and we think it's just some mystical thing. It happened. It was real. So then Christ, listen, then Christ comes and he becomes the one Passover sacrificial lamb. And when Peter says, precious blood, you get that image of every drop is meaningful. Because every drop of the God-man Christ had to be spilt so that sins could be atoned for. Let me explain what I mean. In the Old Testament, it was lamb for a child. Christ becomes Christ for the sins of his children. Lamb for a child, lamb for the children. The preciousness of that blood what Peter is saying, if that doesn't cause you to inside say, I want to be holy as he is holy, then you, then you don't even get it. Now, let me take one more step forward. The theological concept is substitutionary atonement. Say that four times before you go to bed. Um, that was funny to me earlier. Um, Substitutionary atonement is, is Christ, what Christ did. I fear that many of you, in lieu of this deep theological thing that Christ did as the Passover, sacrificial, perfect, unblemished lamb, you've, you've tried to substitute for the substitute. Christ can be the only substitute for many of you. You've tried to substitute for the substitute. And so some of you in your notepads, in your make-believe notepads, um, you're like, well, well, with what? What have I tried to substitute for the substitute with? Like, well, with you. With you. You, in your ignorance, in your pride, in your arrogance, in your self-righteousness, you have tried to put yourself as the substitutionary atonement, believing that God looks down on you and considers you, listen, a worthy sacrifice. When some of you serve, in your mind, what's going on is, I'm a worthy sacrifice. Here I am. Look at all of the deeds that I'm doing. God, don't these things make you happy? And you devoid that worth from Christ as if to put yourself in the place as the only substitute. For those of you tonight that have become the substitute, that have taken Christ out of the equation, that have taken for granted Father God, that have allowed this understanding of the precious blood of Christ now just to be some statement that has no impact on your heart. He is the only 
perfect, spotless substitute. Why don't we fear that? Why don't we honor that? Why don't we thank God for that? Look, there, there's some massive repentance that needs to go on in your heart. Let me share one of my own struggles with you. Christmas, um, around Christmas time for We Love St. Charles, we had um, my, my lot family helped four families and loved on them, and I was really, really pumped about it. Really, to be honest with you, and I, I shared this with Matt and Jeff and a couple others, it was one of the best days of my life. Um, and here's why. One of these families brought their kids to our house. We'd never met these kids before. Brought their kids to our house, and we were going to watch them while, while my wife and a couple other moms took these moms shopping. So three hours of relational time with these moms, three hours of relational time with these boys. We had another crew deliver some coats. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. It was like all this vision and all the We Love St. Charles stuff that, I've, that, I've, that we've dreamed possible. It was happening in like one day. So listen to this. So I'm like sharing and I'm texting. I literally sent my life. If you're in my lot family, you have to have the, the greatest text plan ever. Um, for those of you that are in my lot family, you, you're laughing because you know. This one particular day, in the matter of three hours, I sent four text messages, okay? Um, just because I was so excited. Listen. So I, I lay down at night. And it's been an amazing day. And I've really worshipped all day. And for one moment... As I lay my head on the pillow, I get this sense in my heart. Like, you killed it today, Mark. Your leadership, flawless. Your, your energy, immaculate. And I found myself laying there after a day when I had worshipped all day long. I found myself worshipping myself. I found myself becoming the substitute. I found myself thinking of myself as the unblemished substitute. Have you ever had that moment? Now, thankfully, I woke up the next morning, um, mostly because my, my mind was popping out of my ears because I thought I was so cool, right? And I woke up the next morning, and here's what my little girl said. My little girl said, Daddy, yesterday was pretty awesome, wasn't it? And I don't remember if she said awesome. She may have said Phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad that wasn't as funny to me. Um, she would never say phenomenal. She would say immaculate. But, uh, but she said that, that, was, that was fun, wasn't it? And, and she, she could tell just how awesome it was. And in that moment, I was humbled again and reminded again of the preciousness of the blood that would allow us to see this at work. If I'm left to be the substitute... I'm in big trouble. Listen, I don't want that to sound cliche. If you are left to be the substitute, if that's what you're banking on, you're in big trouble. And for many of you, you've completely forgotten and left this concept of being ransomed behind. And so you're trying to stand in the place of Christ. You're trying to take the glory for all of the deeds that God will be one day judging. But it's only because of the grace of Christ that you have any of it. Now, 
Can I share some thoughts about 2009 with you? Is that cool with you guys? For me and you, that'll be good. Um, 2009 for me was a year of absolute chaos for us as a church, okay? We planted two churches, which as a four-year-old church, you know, take it as it is, it doesn't happen often. We're a young church, planted two churches. We went through a tremendous amount of transition. We launched a nonprofit organization, We Love St. Charles. We changed all of our leadership structure in the Lot families. We redid how the Lot families are involved through all the ways that they serve. We've pretty much replanted Matthias's Lot, even added a new website, even changed, you know, even added a, a, a candelabra or abra, whatever you call them. You know what I'm saying? We've done all these things. Listen, when I look back on 2009, I want to say two things to you. God has been, God has been so incredibly gracious. There were so many relationships that could have went haywire. And I'm not just talking about Jason and I's. I'm talking about, we sent out 24 adults from Matthias to go to Piney Ridge. We sent out several adults to go to August Gate. There, there could have been so much pride and arrogance and tension and things build up between people that could have left us in the dust. But God, listen, don't over, He protected us. He was so gracious. I have sat many times in the last couple of weeks just thanking God for His grace, saying, why have you been so gracious? We are undeserving. I'm undeserving. This church does not deserve your mercy right now. Why have you protected us? And then I say, and keep it coming. You know? Please keep protecting relationships. Please keep guarding us. Please keep pushing us forward. I feel like I've learned more about grace in the last three or four months than I have all of my life. And let me tell you this. When I got to this passage tonight, reading about the ransom and the precious blood of Christ, I feel more appreciative of it tonight than I ever have because I see it continuing to work. And that's what this passage is talking about. It's not just talking about the atonement. The justification of your sins. It's talking about you becoming more like Christ. That the blood of Jesus is still affecting us as Christians. Do you get that? The spotless, unblemished lamb, it wasn't just one and done. It was continuing to affect us, transforming us, making us more like him. And I've never had more fun in my life. I've been in paid ministry for 11 years. I was 18 years old as a youth pastor, all right, making like 250 bucks in a McDonald's Big Mac for a, you know per month. First United Methodist Church in Lebanon, Illinois. I'm gonna be 30 in three days, all right. Don't ever say anything to me about that. I'm become self-conscious about that. I'm now old. For those of you in here that are 40 and, and over, you're not old, but I'm old at 30. Um, anyway, we can talk more about it later, but. Listen, I've never had more fun. I'm having a blast. You know why? Because today I sat down with a a friend of mine from another church here in the city. And we were talking about how their church is going to be a part of We Love St. Charles. And I realized again how this thing is so much bigger than us. How this thing has wheels. How this thing is allowing us opportunities to truly love and be encouraged. Guys, It's just been a blast. And so I look back on this year 
And yes, I've got another kid on the way now. And yes, I'm, I'm you know, almost hitting the century mark. And you know, I'm starting to get some gray hair. You know, all that type of stuff. And I say, God has been gracious. And we're happy. Guys, we're, we're becoming the church. I look at all the things that are happening right now and I'm saying, you know what? Like, is there any other place that you'd rather be right now? And I'm not talking about here at Matthias. I'm just saying with this particular group of people, just going for it. So I'll close with this. So this would be the point where, like, the streamers pop down. It's like 2010. What's next? You know, boom, boom, boom. You know, music comes up and streamers, you know. The tendency for us at this point will be what I sensed in many of your hearts when you came in here tonight. Just doldrum complacency. That will be our tendency. We'll just show up and we'll just start doing We Love St. Charles. And we'll just start doing church. And the, the new vision stuff will just wear off. And we'll just start doing relationships because I guess they're good. And we'll just start kind of loving people because I guess we're supposed to. Listen, I am ready now more than ever to continue to see the grace of God manifested in this city. And more than ever, and I was sharing it with my brother today, listen, I want to see people saved in St. Charles. The depth of my heart, I hope that's what 2010 brings. I hope we see massive salvation in the lost in the city. And if that's the only thing that we get the chance to see, if that's the only thing that we get the chance to participate in, then praise be to God. And so we plead for it and we, and we ask God for it and we don't get complacent for it. We, we just wait and we get active in it because prayer and action go hand in hand. The only question is, is that what you want too? Is it just a few of us or is it all of us? God, please save this city. At a moment in time, when massive salvation was getting ready to happen, listen, the Passover, all the way back, now the disciples are celebrating it. And Jesus breaks the bread. And what's in view is himself as the unblemished, spotless lamb. And he said, this is my body that's broken. In other words, now I, as Christ, listen, now I save from sins. The Israelites, they got led out of Egypt, which was great, but nowhere near what you get. Through my body broken, your sins are atoned for. My sacrifice, my blood means something eternal. And so he breaks it and he says, take and eat. And then he holds up the cup. And then the word that we love here at Matthias, he says, this cup, this deep red cup represents the new covenant in my blood. My blood will bring a new covenant. The covenant has been with this nation Israel. 
but now the covenant will move to Jews and Gentiles. Now the covenant will be based upon relationship to me and not lineage. Now this blood means something so deep, so rich, so precious as Peter says that you better honor it. You better fear it. You better respect it because it has a wellspring of life flowing out of it. And so the boys take and they drink. And then massive outbreak happens. Tonight as we respond, I have one question. What does the word ransomed mean to you? What does it mean to you? As we respond tonight, this meal is for Christians, those who believe in Christ, pursuing holiness, falling more in love with Jesus. But before you take this meal, my encouragement to you is to repent, to allow God to search your heart, and that as you come and take this ancient meal that now has new meaning, will this walk up here be God, give me a renewed picture of the cost of the ransom. Let's pray together, all right? God, I'm so grateful for how your precious blood continues to transform us. I pray, especially for those who have turned the ransom into a wage, into a salary, into something that we still think can be earned. I pray, God, tonight that you will cause this particular church to ignite in a true zeal that just longs to see your saving grace continue to affect the law. So I pray that you would put this church on mission. I pray, God, that we aren't just hearers of the word, but that we're doers. I pray, God, that your sacrifice, that the cost of you being the unblemished, spotless lamb will cause us tonight to honor, to fear, to respect you in ways that maybe we haven't in a long time. God, I pray that this ancient meal will cause our hearts to take it so serious that it has a renewed sense and a renewed meaning. We love you, God. And we thank you for the grace of 2009. And we ask for more of it. Church, when you're ready, please respond.